always depended on the kindness of strangers. All right, so he's not a regular rat or, or even a super rat. He's a scared little mouse, that's all. Ha, I had two years to grow claws, Mother. Jungle Ray! Hello, and welcome to The Real Woman. I am your host, Emmanuel Perryman. I am thrilled to introduce my next guest as she is a returning guest, my first returning guest, and that is the marvelous Dr. Victoria <laughs> Amador. Welcome, Victoria. Thanks, Emmy. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to, to be back with you. Um, now, the first time, you are a scholar in Gothic, uh, American and English Gothic literature and, and film, and so we had covered a different topic earlier, and I encourage listeners, um, if they haven't heard that one, to listen to that one. That was actually the first episode, and it's a special Halloween episode. Um, yeah. But the topic of today is the book that you authored, called Olivia de Havilland, Lady Triumphant. Yes. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to actually begin at the begin. Um, okay. And, and just actually start with the cover. Oh, How yes. How did you come up with the title, and where did you find that just beautiful picture of Olivia? Well... You know, I, all credit has to go to the designers at University Press of Kentucky who did design the cover. Um, the title, Lady Triumphant, came from um, my friend Gene Downs. He's a, a, a writer, and he has known of my just adoration and, and appreciation of her. And we were trying to think of t possible titles. And... You know, she's always, you know, she was the Lady Marion, of course, in Adventures of Robin Hood of uh, from, from 1938 with Errol Flynn. And um, this was before she, she received her damehood, too, because um, now she's Dame Olivia. Yes. Um, but, you know, she's always been very, very careful and very, very smart about the way she controlled her image. So Jean said, you know, what about something like, like Lady Triumphant, because she really, throughout her life, has come out on top um, of a variety of different challenges that she's had. So I thought, you know, she is associated as sort of a lady. Remember, too, of course, Melanie Wilkes in Gone yes. with the Wind is, yes. is such a nice lady. She is sort of the the most admirable female character, I yes. think, in, in the whole Maybe the most film. admirable character, period. Well, actually, yes. You know, I think between, well, between Melanie and Mammy, they are the two people who really know how to love. Yes. You know, they are the people who know how to love and how to forgive. Um, yes. So that was kind of, that was the title. And then the photograph, which is marvelous, I think. Um, I was able to go to the Margaret Herrick Library, which is the library for the um, Academy Awards mm -hmm. in Beverly Hills. Oh, God, that was great. I and I got to spend, oh, man, I mean, a dream come true. And I got to spend a week doing research. 
Um, I mean, you know, I'm doing research on uh, Edith Head's old dining room table. You know, I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. Yeah. And so I was able to get into their archive of photographs and I saw that uh, picture and it's so it's so beautiful. I mean, she does sort of look rather like, I don't know, Circe or some. Well, remarkable... I thought that she looks like a Greek goddess. She does indeed. And since the 19 actually the 1970s most of the award uh shows that she went to when she had to present an oscar or something she tended to wear these kinds of floaty chiffon caftan sort of dresses Mm -hmm. and so i thought that's very much her style and so i had actually thought of a different photo but the designers at um, University Press, and unfortunately the name escapes me, but it would be in the book, um, said, hey, look, Lady Triumphant, she looks like she's on the prow of a ship. And she I was does. like, absolutely. Yes. So to me, I was thrilled to bits because, you know, sometimes when you do a university press or a small press publication, sometimes the cover art isn't very nice or yes. sometimes the you know, the font that they choose isn't appropriate, but to me, the cover captured the elegance and the intelligence. It really does. It really does. It's very, it's a very classy look. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I was thrilled to bits. So I guess the, 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 my first question is why Olivia de Havilland? I mean, if I think the average person to begin with, may not even be as familiar with her. I mean, when we think of the pantheon of great Hollywood actresses, fair or not, I think a lot of people think Katharine Hepburn or Betty Davis or Joan Crawford. And they don't, you know, Olivia de Havilland or Jean Arthur, you know, other people who are, were not lesser then, but over the years have maybe lost some of it. So what drew you to want to uh, write a book about Olivia de Havilland? Um, I think you're absolutely right. And one of the reasons that I wanted to write this book was to try to correct that. Because yes, on the list of, you know, if you look at AFI, American Film Institute, which I frequently disagree with. Mm -hmm. um, Yes. You know, their their list of top this or who's getting the Life Achievement Award. Oh, it's another guy. Yeah. Oh, and it's a guy under under 60. Fabulous. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, To me, it's rather shocking that so many amazing actresses and actors, or I guess we should call them all actors now, are not recognized. So... It started really um, with Gone with the Wind, Um, because when I was a teenager in the late 60s, that book, and of course, it's a very controversial book and film now, because the world has gone, has moved on and changed. Yes. But at, at that time, it really was sort of a rite of passage. Also, um, I, I was raised in Wisconsin, but I was born in Baltimore. And I don't care what anybody says, in my family, Baltimore was a southern state. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, you know, my mama never lost that accent. Yeah, and so, yeah. um, so reading Gone with the Wind was also, you know, kind of tied to that heritage on my mother's side, you know, that southern heritage. Um, and 
as much as I, I mean, I adore Vivian Lee and I loved Scarlett. To me, Scarlett is the ultimate survivor. I think she kicks ass and she's amazing. Yeah. However, I, when I was reading the book, one of the things that struck me was just how kind Melanie was. And I'm, you know, internally, I'm much more like Scarlett than Melanie, to be sure. Um, and I think the, we all the, are. Yeah, well, I think a lot except of except for are, maybe you know? Olivia. Except, well, mm, I would say Olivia is, <laughs> is more Scarlet than Melanie. You know, that's why she's Lady Triumphant. Man, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, but um, the book, I just loved it, and I'm not a big one for epics, but I think it was because you saw that it was the women who were who were helping everyone survive. Mm -hmm. And, and so that I found incredibly important and moving. And then they reissued the film in 70 millimeter. And, you know, this is pre it had never been shown on television. You, you know, you couldn't see it unless it came to a theater. So I went and it blew me away. I had never seen anything like that. And because I loved the book so much, and of course, I fell madly in love with Vivian Lee. But the thing that I loved so much was that Olivia's Melanie was, she wasn't treacly. She wasn't mm -hmm. sickeningly sweet. She was, as I said before, the same thing as Manny and really Rhett Butler, too, to an extent. You know, they were able to see the good in those horrible people that they yes. were around. Yeah. And and love them anyway. Yeah. And so, and also, also though, too, at that time, um, Olivia was still working, you know, so I, I had seen her, some of her old movies on television and particularly the Errol Flynn ones. Mm -hmm. And I thought he was gorgeous. And I thought she was just, she was so energetic and intelligent in those films. So it, it made such an impression on me, Gone with the Wind, the book, the, the film, her performance, and of the four major cast people, she was the only person still living, you know? Mm -hmm. um, Gable was gone, Leslie Howard died during World War II, Vivian died in 67. So I thought, well, I'm gonna write a fan letter. So, <laughs> and I did a lot of that at that time. You know, I wrote to Alfred Lunt, the great Broadway oh, actor. Oh, really? Well, he was from Wisconsin. Oh, okay. And so I wrote to his wife, Lynn Fontan, and I got a letter back from her. You know, I, I wrote to Jonathan Frid, who was Barnabas Collins on Dark Shadows, and got a picture. Oh, my gosh. But I, I wanted to be an actress. That was my goal. I yeah. wanted to be an actress when I grew up. So I got Olivia's address out of Who's Who, and I wrote her a fan letter. And I just said, you know, um, I, I really admire you. I've seen the movies that you've done with Errol Flynn. I'd seen other films. Plus, she was in Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte, which yes. is one of my favorite movies which of all time. I have to say, as a side note, and my mother now hates when I tell this story, but um, when I was about 10, my friend and I were like, we want to see a scary movie. And she's like, no, you don't. You're too young. No, we want to see a scary movie. So... <laughs> We went to, we were at Tower Records. And, oh, great. And, oh, and in New she, York? Yes, right on oh, Broadway man, in 66. Oh, that was a great story. It was. And she rented for us double feature 
Psycho and Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. Fabulous. And we watched them both. And when I say that I was traumatized for a solid year afterwards, (laughs) my friend didn't even make it through the night. She had to call her parents. Oh, my God. We were so traumatized. That opening, that that scene where Betty, it's like a, a, a the cleaver comes down. Oh yes, and and, and chops and, off and Bruce chops, Dern's hand. Yes, oh my God. Well, I was convinced in my hallway because I had you know New York apartments and long hallways. And I was convinced in the hallway there was like some sort of there was a door to the staircase, the emergency uh-huh. door, and there was oh, some yeah. shadow that I convinced myself looked like a hand. Oh, no. And I would, like, close my eyes and run by. Oh, you... (laughs) Yes. I I have since... I have watched it since then, and I'm okay, and I thoroughly enjoy it, but that was my first experience with it. And that was my first Olivia de Havilland. That's... Do you know... I think that's a perfect first Olivia because you get both sides of the star persona in that film. Because, of course, she she comes and she's Cousin Miriam, who's going to help me, you yes, know? Yes, And then we discover, as it unfolds, I mean, you know, when she breaks that chair over Agnes Moorhead's head yes. and Agnes goes rolling down the steps, it's sort of like, oh, Melanie Wilkes. Yes. and. And so, yeah, so I had seen her in that. And what I loved was that how can you do that and then and be Melanie at the same time? And to me, that was like sort of the ultimate in acting. Plus, I loved the gothic. Yes. And so the fact that she had also been in that film, I just thought, oh, man, this is this is wonderful. So so anyway, I wrote her a fan letter and she wrote back and I I still have it, of course. And I was over the moon. I couldn't believe. And it wasn't just like, you know, at that time, I don't think they do it anymore. But at the time, you could write a letter and then a studio would send you back like a fake stamped photograph, you know. Right. But this this was hand signed. It was typed. And she also included a small picture of herself as Melanie. And I, I... I know, and I hadn't asked for the picture, but she wrote this wonderful uh, letter and said how lovely that I was wanted to be an actress, and she was so glad that I liked the film, and I had asked her what it was like to work with everybody, and she answered me, and so I got that, and it made me feel very, very special, you know? Um, Yeah. Little girl, small town, central Wisconsin. I, I just suddenly, that raised me up. A little mm-hmm, bit and mm-hmm. gave me that you know patina of something special yeah so I wrote back I didn't want her to think that I was writing to her just to get that picture and so I wrote back I was 13 and I said well you know I thank you so much and I would love it if we could be pen pals <laughs> <laughs> which only and, the innocent an innocent kid would would even think that that would be possible Exactly. You know, exactly. Plus, you know, she lived in Paris. Yeah. And that, you know, Paris is my favorite city in the world. And I hadn't been there at that time. Um, but it just seemed so, you know, it was so romantic and 
oh, you know, couture fashion and all of that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. So I, I wrote back and bless her heart, she wrote back. And I, I realized later that I'm, she does this with her fans. She's got um, such a correspondence where has had that. For example, um, I don't know if you'll remember, Emmy, you know, we, when we met in Sydney, Australia at that conference in 2013, mm -hmm. there, there was a woman there named Anne-Marie Cook. And Anne-Marie was part of the organization that was running our conference. Yes. And Anne-Marie Anne was a lawyer at the time. And Anne-Marie had written to her and had gotten a letter from her. And they had had a correspondence. Oh, wow. Yeah, isn't that wild? That is crazy. Um, it's amazing. And so Olivia's always been incredibly good about fan mail. I think she's very smart about it, like Joan Crawford was, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. It's like, my fans keep getting me jobs, and so I'm going to do this. So anyway, she wrote back, and we have been in touch ever since. So that was 1969. So the fact that the book came out That's in amazing. 2019 was very, very significant. And the fact me, that she's you know, still with us. She is 103 and a half. I mean, that's and amazing. And, you know, she's going to turn 104 on July 1st. And um, I think it's absolutely remarkable that, that she's still with us. But she's that's another reason that title lady triumphant yeah olivia is a tough cookie and this is one of the things that i admired so much about her because you know i wanted to be an actress but to be honest emmy i just didn't have the guts you know i mm -hmm. i got a master's in theater and i just did a show in february in minneapolis which was wonderful um but i did not have that courage to to put myself forth and take all of that rejection. Oh um, yes, it's a it's a rough you know, it's a rough life. I think it's a, an incredibly brutal brutal business. Yeah. When ninety percent of of equity members are unemployed at any one time, you know. Yeah. And and I had friends, so I I just didn't have the courage, but she stayed at it, and she also got out of it at the right time. Right. And so I was looking at the way that she had managed her career, the way that she managed her privacy, and I thought, you know, this is this is kind of a role model. I mean, I, I was raised by a single mother, and our relationship, I mean, bless her for taking care of me, but our relationship was rather difficult. Whereas Olivia, of course, is sort of like that idealized mm -hmm. um, older person who's out there. And... She's got a daughter, Giselle, who is a year younger than me. So mm -hmm. I think uh, I think that because her daughter was a year younger, and here's this 13-year-old writing to her, right. maybe she also thought, you know, my daughter has certain people she likes and admires, so who am I to rain on this girl's parade? So she, yeah. she, was, she was lovely. And um, so I had, you know, that, that's really how it started. And we continued to correspond all those years. And then, you know, I went on, I got the PhD, my career kind of went towards film and film criticism. So I finally had an opportunity to write about her, you know, and yeah. to go to conferences and talk about why she was so important to me. 
and also to try to make that point that she really deserves a, a much more attention than she receives yes. by, from from people who you know love that golden era of Hollywood. And 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 we should say also positive attention because she does not necessarily want the attention that Ryan Murphy was giving her. Oh yes, and shall we talk about that real quickly? Yeah, um, we'll, we'll swing through that. Okay, I I will. Um, I thought Feud was really good, and yeah. of course, you know, I'm we're talking. You're in Detroit. I'm in Scotland in my little caravan on lockdown. But one of the things, one of the um, things that I've got on my computer is all all of the episodes of Feud. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. oh, it's like, fun. Oh, yes, I think I'll. I thought it was really, really well done. Yes. Um, and when it, and I thought, you know, it presented Joan Crawford in a very sympathetic light, and I thought that was wonderful. And it's like, okay, well, you're restoring Joan. And when they cast Catherine Zeta-Jones, I thought, oh, you've got to be kidding. But I thought she got it. I thought she was wonderful. She got that sort of controlled, ladylike persona that Olivia puts on in public, yeah. um, which worked well. But... Ryan, everybody in that whole program, except for um, Betty Davis's daughter, is dead, mm-hmm. except for Olivia. <laughs> and yeah. so he, you know, he, you know, the whole structure of it. So yeah. she's presented as sort of a narrator of a documentary about the two women and their feud and all of that sort of thing. Um, but he didn't contact her. He didn't reach out to her at all. And, you know, she's not doolally sitting someplace, you know, yeah. she's, she's got her marbles. She's a sharp, sharp lady. And he had her, and I remember watching it, and he had her refer to her bitch sister, Joan Fontaine. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, she and Joan are also renowned for their feud that, you know, yes. they, that went on for years. Um, and I remember watching that and Catherine Zeta-Jones saying that, and I thought, uh-oh, I thought, I know somebody who's not going to like that. Mm-hmm. So, and now I know I'm not the only person who wrote to her, but I immediately emailed her and I said, by the way, mm-hmm. <laughs> are you aware that you are in this production and that, you know, all of this? And she wrote back one word, no, exclamation point. Well... I didn't hear anything after that for a bit. Um, And then she filed the lawsuit. Mm -hmm. And her lawsuit really was that he was damaging a public reputation that she spent years building because she never, ever referred to Joan Fontaine with any sort of vulgar language, ever, you know? Joan, Joan wrote a book called No Bed of Roses, her autobiography, which is actually quite moving. Um, and, you know, clearly she's not happy with Olivia when she's writing it. Yeah. But Olivia would speak about my sibling or my sister. Um, occasionally she would refer to her as Dragon Lady, which I love. <laughs> um, but even in our conversations, she never, ever <clears throat> used that kind of language. And so her whole case was, hey, dude, make what you want to make. You can, you know, talk about that period, but could you get the facts right? 
Right. Could you be correct? Like, yes, she did fly and she was at the Academy Awards when Betty lost for Baby Jane. And she, they were g good friends. Um, but really, the, the way that she, Olivia felt that the way that she was presented was contradictory to the persona that she had developed. Right. So she took him to court. And of course, she, she took it um, in California and then the California Supreme Court and then <clears throat> the uh, federal Supreme Court refused to listen to the case. And that was the end of it. And it, I think it really I think that really disturbed her. I think that was very, very difficult for her mm -hmm. because I don't believe that Olivia was what. Yes, she's a public figure. But she was still alive. And I think if Ryan Murphy had had the courtesy to contact her uh, through her agent, um, Jim Wilhelm, who's been her agent for 30 years, and who, by the way, is married to someone that I went to college with. <laughs> so that's another <laughs> wonderful connection. Yeah. Um, if she had contacted Jim, and or, or rather, if he had contacted Jim, perhaps had flown to Paris to visit her, to talk with her and to say, look, this is what we're doing. And, and to maybe get her on board with it, none of that would have happened. Right. And if anything, he might've gotten some better stories out of her. Yeah. Um, but it was that lack of respect and yeah. she sued him. You know, she, she is, you don't survive in that business without breaths of scandal around yes. you yes. unless you are incredibly careful. So that's why she sued him. And I love Ryan Murphy's stuff. I, I love the American Horror Story. He's, yes. you know, Hollywood is coming out soon. Yes, I just I saw the trailer to, for that. I know. I can't wait to see it. Yeah. But I'm yeah. very disappointed that they, I, I think he just thought, you know, oh, she won't care. Or, you know, is she even alive or is she, you know coherent and of course she is yeah you know i i thought it was i thought it was really a poor move on his part and i i don't think that like i don't think it was malicious i think it was careless exactly i don't think it was malicious at all because i think the way that it's written and the way that Catherine zeta jones performs it i think she comes off very well and with humor and compassion and as somebody who really knows how the business works and all of that sort of thing. But it was careless. And you know what? You're not careless with Olivia. Right. You just aren't. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. And um, that's why you may have noticed at the back of the book, there are so many notes. Yes. And... <laughs> yes, well, I, you know, and that's, that's one of the things <clears throat> I have to say specifically about the book. The general tone of the book is a very conversational tone and that I really enjoy. And maybe it helps that I know you, but I feel like you're talking to me when I read it. And I, I feel like I'm almost sometimes um, eavesdropping on, on your, your conversations with Olivia. And, and yeah. you know, I, I really enjoy re reading uh, biographies. And, Me too. And, but a lot of them, it's like they tend to either be really super nerdy academic, which is fine, but can be dense, 
you know, oh, yes. and, and or oh. and boring, or almost too casual. Like the like this person's my bestie, and they've never done anything wrong ever in their entire life, and it's sort of this, you know crystallized image of them. Yeah. But you've managed with this book, I feel, to to strike a very um, just delicate, wonderful balance between having a lot of information, being, you know, academic and, and informative on the other, on one hand, but, but it not coming across like I'm sitting in a lecture hall, you know? I mean, it really yeah. feels like I'm uh, having a conversation, and thanks for that, Emmy. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 uh, I enjoy that. that. How, thank you very much, because that's how I wanted to approach it. I knew that in writing that book, I could not, I couldn't approach it the way I would approach some of the articles that I've written about her and about her, you know, film performances or other articles that I've written about you know, other movies or, or the Gothic or, yeah. you know, the female vampire or something like yeah. that. There are different audiences, but I thought, what, what is something that I love? And something that I love is when I talk to someone and they've met somebody that they admired or that I admire, and they've got a story to tell. Yeah. And I'm always like, Oh really? Well, when was it? And what, what did he say? Or what did she say? And, and, were they nice or weren't they nice and all of that sort of stuff. And I thought, you know, I can't stand back from this um, long correspondence and simply write, you know, the story of Olivia de Havilland's uh, career. I, I couldn't do that in good conscience. Not only that, I, it's not the kind of book that I wanted to read. And I also didn't want to do some sort of a, sleazy slam job on it you right, know we've right. all read those books yeah um i'm not gonna do a hollywood babylon well which i love okay yes. i love that stuff. well it's I fun for trash. what it is yes but this i how could i do that and write that about her right. i couldn't so i thought what i've got to do is strike a balance between really trying to talk about her as an artist and that was foremost in my mind. I wanted to talk about her as an actress, as as a writer, um, as a feminist. Yeah. I wanted to talk about her in that respect. But at the same time, I also wanted to make it clear that she wasn't perfect. You know, I mean, when she was when she was having her great love affair with John Houston, he was married. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I, I mean, you know, uh, she wasn't you know, this ideal, pure little person. She was a woman. She is a woman. And so I wanted to talk about that without having to talk about, you know, something scurrilous. Right. You know, for example, in, in um, the movie The Aviator, um, there's a short scene because, you know, she did date um, Howard Hughes. Yeah. And so did her sister and so did everybody <laughs> else in Hollywood. Yeah. You know? But there's a scene where Jude Law is playing Errol Flynn, and he makes this throw-off comment, comment about the those those sisters, Joan and Olivia, and the mother, and you know they're not as innocent as they pretend to be, and that sort of thing. And I thought, you know what? Let somebody else write that book. I'm not interested. Yeah. I'm. This is this is my book. So that was why I 
I approached her too. You know, I I did the the book proposal. Oh God, back in 2011, <laughs> went through several drafts, and um, <clears throat> finally was accepted. But I let her know. I said I'm I'm working on a book on you, just as I would say. Hey, I went to a conference. Right. And I think she was okay about it. For example, I went to a John Huston conference in Galway in 2006. And I talked about the film he directed with her when their affair started, called In This Hour Life, and Betty Davis is in it as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have and um, yeah, and through that conference, I met her, her, um, his daughter Allegra, who's a writer, Allegra Houston. Mm-hmm. So when that got published, I sent it to Olivia, and I got the sweetest letter back, where she said, "John would love this. You got it right. That's exactly what we were trying to do." with the film, you know, so I figured, okay, you know, she'll be all right with this. So I wrote to her and I said, you know, and I've been trying to meet her forever, you know, Yeah. I mean, God, I, I can't tell you how many times I'd walk past her house in Paris, you know, mm-hmm. I, I was able to work abroad and, you know, I'd just be like, hello, are you there? You know, I'd look <laughs> up at the wind, the light in the windows, hello, you know, so um, I, but, you know, I wrote to her and I said, may I ask you, may I interview you? And she insisted on email. And you know why it was? It was to control it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was It was control, which is why, again, you know, it's like Ryan Murphy. Hello. Who do you think you're dealing with here? Yeah. She is a victor of the Hollywood wars. Yeah. So, you know, so she, you know, wrote back and forth and answered a lot of questions for me. Um, and I was very careful as well. You know, for example, her, her son died. And I talk about that a little bit in the book, but I didn't want to approach her too much on that mm-hmm. because, mm-hmm. my God, that's a very painful thing. But I did and, and uh, you know, talked about it a little bit. Her daughter, Giselle, lives in Malibu. Well, Giselle's a year younger than me. Giselle's got a life. So I talked about Giselle. But again, I didn't... I didn't write it for prurience. Uh, yeah. you know, I didn't write it. I I wrote it as a tribute to her, while at the same time also making it clear she's tough. Yeah. She's hard work. You know. Yeah. She's not easy. I didn't meet her until 2012, and um, <laughs> you know I'd been barking at the and <laughs> pounding at the door for years. Yeah. She's just. She's very very careful. So. By writing it in that style, I was hoping, like you said, I was walking that line between if you're a film fanatic and you really are interested in in classic Hollywood, you will find out some very interesting things here. Yes. But if you also want to know about how does a woman negotiate life who's born in 1916 and in 2019 is still alive and well and living in Paris? How does a woman negotiate a career, love affairs, divorces, children, um, getting older in Hollywood? Um, You know, how do you do that? Yeah. You know, so that was why I I wrote it the way I did. And it's gotten mostly good reviews, but a few people have criticized it. And they're like, well, oh, you know, she just talks about it like, you know, she's a friend. Well, but she yeah. is. I don't see that as a criticism, personally. Well, you know, Writer, like really she's a stranger. Well, yeah. Sorry, 
you know, William Mann wrote a wonderful book about Catherine Hepburn and, and about their friendship. And to me, reading that gave me insight that, you know, that he, through knowing her personally, would know. Right. And and then if I want to read something else, perhaps more objective, there are those books out there, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, I, I tried to walk the line and... You know what? I haven't been sued. So, <laughs> so you're doing better than Ryan Murphy. <laughs> That's it. You got that right, you know, fortunately. <laughs> well, you know, I and I think that your style really served you well, particularly um, when you discussed uh, Olivia and Errol, because uh-huh. that is a topic that... Um, you know, is sort of one of the famous did they or didn't they stories of yes. Hollywood. And <laughs> and depending on, your, you know, how you feel about it, they did or they didn't, you know. Yeah. And, and But I really liked how you put it out there and said, look, this is what we absolutely know. This is yep. what we don't know. And we can't put on them what our desire might may have been like you know we want marion and robin hood to end up together yes we sure do <laughs> you know and we do indeed and and, she, and you know go ahead Sorry. no 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 continue please well she, you know she she has admitted and as time has gone on you know um of course, you know, he died in 1959, mm-hmm. but as time has gone on in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and onward, she has admitted that yes, you, that yes, she was in love with him, but he was married. He was married when they met in, when, during Captain Blood. You know, she mm-hmm. was 19 and, and he was gorgeous. Oh my God. And such a good actor, really another underrated actor. You know, actor, I, you I know? actually went to middle school with his grandson. No way. Luke oh. Flynn Stoker. Oh, and Stoker, the last name. Yes. Oh, my God. Luke Flynn Mark. Stoker. And he was a, a gorgeous blonde boy. Oh. You know, well. I mean, there you go. It was a gorgeous blonde boy who, who's, who's only whose only sort of slight disadvantage in life, and maybe it changed, but at least by high school, into high school, his voice had not changed. Poor boy. So he was this pretty blonde boy who kind of just had this high voice. (laughs) Well, so, but yes, but yes, I went to, I went to school with his grandson. How funny is oh, that? Oh, I think that's marvelous. And maybe he's lucky that his grandfather wasn't around to maybe help him lower his voice because, <laughs> yes. you know, although he'd have some great stories to tell, I'm yes, sure. Yes, yes, um, yes. But, you know, I, I, we don't know. She has never come out and said it. Yes, we had a, a physical affair. Because it's we nobody's business kids. but theirs. Really? It's nobody's business but theirs. And yes, you know, I, they were so beautiful. And I, of course, I kind of hope they did because they were so gorgeous and young. But think about it. He was sleeping with everybody. So, you know, I I think, you know, in terms of health, I think she made (laughs) maybe made a good call. But not only that, again, he was married and we're talking about contract players 
in Hollywood in the 1930s um, when they've just instituted that code of behavior for the screen. Yes. If it had come out that she and Flynn had had an affair, I don't think it would have ruined his career, but it certainly would have ruined hers. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, particularly given the persona that Warner Brothers was was building for her at the time. Yeah. As, you know, the 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 ingenue, which is basically what she was playing. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I didn't, I really thought, yes, I know everybody wants to know. And remember, too, she got after Michael Caine, who said that she told him a story about, yes. uh, you know, losing it up in the, the hills above Warner Brothers to Flynn. And she issued a statement about that back in the 70s through her friend Robert Osborne, that that was not true, that she would never have said anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, in, in a perfect world, they, at the end of, of those films, they wrote off together <laughs> yes. and it was marvelous. Yes. But, but if you think about it, she didn't do too badly. You know, she dated, I mean, Howard Hughes was, was a wealthy, famous man at the time. Um, Jimmy Stewart, she adored him. Yes. Um, he, he was, and John, John Huston was the great romance. The, the great love, and they remained friends off and on um, th through the years. I think it's very, very difficult. I think she had the same problems that Betty Davis had, you know? There you are. What What's your job? Kissing people, you know? Yeah. My job is wearing pretty clothes and kissing attractive men, and many of them are married. Yes. And, you know, this happens all the time. You, you do a show, you know, whether it's a play or it's a film, and, you know, if you're in a romantic situation, you're not made of wood. Things are going to happen between people. Yeah. Um, I think it's very difficult, and I think that as a result, too, um, it's very hard also to sustain relationships when you are a woman, especially at that time, making your own money, making the decisions about your life, you know, uh, you're a public figure. Mm -hmm. I think it was very difficult for a lot of women at that time um, to find that wonderful balance between having a career and having that private life. And I think Olivia found that difficult as well, you know? Well, and I think... Uh, women still find it it's difficult. St exactly, still find it difficult. But I feel like it was even more difficult then because... You know, here, Betty Davis is the same way, but, uh, you know, Olivia was a very um, intelligent, strong-willed, independent woman who yes. didn't need anybody to support her financially. And, exactly. And which, you know, is one thing in 2020, but in the 1930s, a, wom a woman is supposed to need a man. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, and a woman who's especially petite and very pretty, you know, she's she's got such a lovely prettiness about her. Yes, it's almost um, angelic. She has like a cherubic look yes, to her. She, she absolutely does. You know, whereas her sister, Joan Fontaine, had a more, let's say, classically beautiful kind of face. Though, yes. you know, when you look at them in certain angles and certain films, boy, you can really see that they were were sisters without a doubt. But, you know, Olivia's got that that um, 
idealized persona, and there she is being matched as a screen team um, at a time of important screen teams with Errol Flynn. And so what are you going to do if you're intelligent and you want a career and you're focused? And there you are, and the guys that you meet are married or they're playboys, you know, mm -hmm. um, or they're married and playboys. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And the only way it seems to me that a lot of those marriages worked, it was the marriages that worked for the men. And they worked for the men because the women retired. Yeah. You know, a, a lot of women had careers, but when they got married, that was it. They stopped acting and they, they took care of the home. And that was, how, that was why that marriage worked. But to be a powerful woman then, at that time especially, very, very difficult. I think that's one of the reasons that she and Betty Davis were good friends. You know, Betty was eight years older than Olivia, um, but Betty had had to fight for the roles just like Olivia did. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. and I think, and fight for for a relationship that would work and and um, have, to, have to pick it up after the relationship ends. And there she is a single mother and she's still working and she's a public figure. I mean, how difficult is that? Yeah, um, yeah. So I think uh, to me and, you know, let us not forget, Olivia's got two Oscars. Yeah. yeah. And um, for her to have achieved those two Oscars and three nominations in the space of three years, come on. That's I, I don't know of another actor that's gotten that well, many. Inside. I mean, I know that they but but it's a small group who have had it's that many accolades small. in such a short amount of time. Exactly. It is a very small group. And when you go from some of the stuff that she was making in the 30s and you jump ahead 10 years and she's got that first first Oscar for In This Our Life in 1946, it's pretty remarkable. And when you remember, too, she took Jack Warner to court. She was off the screen for two years. Yeah. It's If she hadn't won that court case she probably would have been able to work in the theater, but she would, she would have been dead in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and I just, I really, I think it's because she withdrew from Hollywood at the right time. You know, she married uh, Pierre Galland, who was the editor for, or one of the editors for Paris Match, and he was a journalist, and she moved to Paris. Right time to go. Yeah. You know, she knew she's she saw the writing on the wall. You know, this is 1953, 54, 55. She's looking at what's happening to Betty Davis. Mm -hmm. She's looking at the careers of a lot of those women who are careening towards 40 and can't seem to get a good good role anymore. Um, and I think that because she withdrew from Hollywood, I think that in turn, in a way, maybe Hollywood withdrew from her, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. um, you refuse to stay here and, you know, beg for crumbs. Right. And so um, I think that's why a lot of people don't really know who she is or they take her for granted. They think all she is is Melanie. But boy, I mean, I mean you want to watch it. Oh, the heiress. Yes. And oh. then let's talk a little bit about the heiress because that is probably my favorite uh, Olivia role. Um, yeah, me too. I mean, of Catherine Sloper. Um, oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> The Heiress is one of those movies that there's a part of me that always wishes the ending is a little different <laughs> each time. Oh, I know. <laughs> you know, I, I, I have this, I have this 
sort of internal struggle because there's a part of me that just wants to say, open the door, leave with him. Yeah, let him in. Let Let him him in. in. He's Um, he's learned his lesson. It's Montgomery Clift for crying out loud. (laughs) Oh, God. Oh, and I had such a crush on him. You know, I mean, I he died in 66. So I had barely discovered who he was before he was gone. But he's he is so it's such a brilliant film. And when you realize that really you had three different acting styles going on there. Yes. Um, and that that tension, you know, he's doing method. Ralph Richardson is doing that sort of British. Yeah. Stick up your butt old Vic kind of thing. And then Olivia is listening to Willie Wyler, uh, the director, William Wyler, because she knows he's going to guide her to an excellent performance. Well, I feel know? like she is in a in a in a in a way a sort of bridge between the yep. old the, the, the old and the new. She's not she method true. per se, but there's definitely an, a more naturalistic style to her than to Ralph Richardson. Yeah. You Although know? he's wonderful. And he's I wonderful. Mean, his- he's perfect for that role. Yes, I think they're all perfect, just as I think Montgomery Clift, you know, he's sort of, he's really becoming quite the heartthrob at this, at this point in that film. He's, you know, he's, he's had a success on Broadway, but, you know, he's coming up to a place in the sun. This is, this is when he is starting to peak as a romantic lead Mm -hmm. and he's charming and flirtatious and deep and passionate and all of that Mm -hmm. stuff. and poor, you know, and then there she is, someone who is absolutely, completely out of step with every single part of her life. Yeah. You know, who, who doesn't, and yet at the same time can joke with her aunt, mm-hmm. Miriam Hopkins, who's also wonderful in it. Yes. Um, who is, who, and who has the courage to say no to her dying father and, and to, to other people as well. You know, she's an heiress. Yeah. If she had wanted to marry that character of Catherine Sloper, Catherine Sloper could have gotten married. But I think Olivia makes it very clear in that latter part of the film that Catherine coming into her own self, just as Olivia did as an actress, you know, um, just yeah. as Olivia did as a woman, coming yeah. into her, her true self, she comes to a point where she doesn't need she doesn't need the approbation of anyone and particularly any man and Mm -hmm. i think she lets him when she lets him in when she lets morris in you can't help but hope oh please you know yeah but when she says he you know he came and he said the same thing and he's gotten greedier he not only wants my money he wants my love too she sees right through him now he's desperate yes Yes, he, you know, he is he's come back because he's he's down at heel. He he never wrote. He didn't go away, make a fortune and come back. He's come back because he's got no place else to go. Right. And she does. But yeah. but you're right. You know, when he's pounding on the door, you just are like, oh, how can you how can you not let that cute let him in? Just <laughs> let him in. Who cares? Yeah. You know, but but one thing, too, we have to think about as well. She can't let him in because if she does, he will be in control of her money. Yeah. 
you know, she will, yes, if she allowed him to come in and married him, yes, he probably would take good care of her. And, you know, she wouldn't be alone anymore. And God knows he's attractive. But she would be once again losing power. And she'd lost it once and loved once and been cruelly deceived. Why do it again? Right. You know, if he had come in in a different way, it might have had a different ending. Um, but that walk up the stairs. Oh, and I'll tell you, Emmy, truly, you know, I've broken up with a few people. And and certainly when I was going through my divorce, watching that movie helped me enormously. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. <laughs> no, it's definitely... You know, it, it's true. It's definitely a movie that my opinion changes as I've gotten older. You know, in yes. my 20s, it was like, oh, who cares? It's Clift. Yes, <laughs> um, I know, me too. But 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 in my 40s, and I've, you know, had relationships and broken up and been broken up with and all of that, and I've even had a few try to come back and go, uh-uh you know, oh, yeah. that ship has sailed. And so, oh, yeah. and so, you know, as a, as a, as an older person, I, I understand her decision more, you know, and, yes. and, and better. Um, yeah. I may not necessarily like it, but I understand I it. I definitely understand I, it. I think you make a very good point about it because you want Catherine to be loved as well. Yes. You know, you want you want her to to kiss again. I mean, that beautiful scene where he kisses her the first time, and then, you know, she she kisses him back and so timidly and doesn't know what she's doing. But then when he comes back, you know, when 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 they are reunited after um, she has to go to Europe, that girl knows how to kiss. Yeah. She is. She has changed, and. It's really Morris's tragedy. We see it as Catherine's, but it isn't. It's Morris's no, tragedy. No, because I think she's going to be fine. Oh, I think she's more than fine. You I, know, yeah. I think she's, and she has that moment, you know, and, and I love that she gives him the, the ruby buttons, you know, ruby and diamond buttons. It's like, here, do you know what? I don't even want these anymore. You wanted me for my money. <clears throat> here you go. Go sell them. Maybe they'll set you up in a business. But yeah. we're done. Um, I think it's a. I think it's a great. It's a wonderful novella, of course, by Henry James, and and you know it was revived on Broadway just a few years ago, um, with um, Jessica Chastain. Yes. And it 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 remains a very powerful statement. I think of a very powerful feminist statement. Yes. And and that's a, that's another reason that I wanted to write the book because I just wanted to make it clear that women like Olivia make women like us possible. Yeah. You know, women like Olivia who sued Jack Warner, whether they know it or not, she is the template for women who were who were su suing Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. You know? No, we're going to say no. We're saying no to this. This is not how I'm going to conduct my life. This is not how I'm going to conduct my career. And I think that's why she sued Ryan Murphy as well. I know there was no love lost between her and Joan, but she never once used, used the word bitch in public and never would have. And it's like, yeah. sorry, no, you don't get to do this to me. Not right. again. Right.
never again. No, and she definitely, and that's, and that is her message to him at, at, in the end of Eris, which is also, I think, sort of a American Gothic. Oh yes, you know, it definitely oh, yes. falls in the American Gothic, and and I would even argue that it has um, noir elements to it as well. I oh, think, it does indeed, without you know, a doubt. I think, and 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 I think you know, an argument could be made that he's the he's the homme fatale in, in place of the femme fatale. Ab- you are absolutely right, absolutely right, and uh, no, I I think. Uh, it's an interesting movie in that it falls into many categories. It does indeed. It absolutely does. You know, it's the sort of thing that, on the one hand, you could see, you know, you were talking about American Gothic. You could see it sort of revisited many years later in a, a short story like A Rose for Emily mm-hmm. um, by mm-hmm. William Faulkner, you know, where Emily's boyfriend disappears as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she, we find out she poisoned him and kept him in her bed for years. So there's that possibility, yes. but there's, you know, but there's also the wonderful, as you say, that noir element of, you know, in a lot of noir films, yes, the femme fatale, the guy takes a bullet at the end. You know, you think about Fred McMurray right. in um, uh, Double Indemnity, but in this one, you know what? She doesn't die. And she in doesn't fact, die. The, no, she doesn't die. She doesn't lose her money. She isn't shamed. She is her own person. Will there be lonely times? Yes, there will. But who doesn't have them, you know? And ultimately what she has done is found herself. And um, that's the best love story. And that's the best love ending, isn't it? It really is. The best romantic ending. And you know, I want to just, I'd I'd love to hear you just talk about one, uh, well, First of all, I think we have to say just one more thing about Gone with the Wind, which was when they were looking for the the actors for the movie, everyone wanted Scarlett. Yep. And she didn't. Yeah. What was it about the character of Melanie, do you think, that, well, you, that attracted her to it? You know, she's talked about it a lot. And she's, she said that when she, she had read the book, because everybody read the book, you know. Yeah. Um, like I, I, you know, won the Pulitzer Prize. And just as, like I said, when I was 12 and 13, all my girlfriends, we read the book too. You know, it was kind of a, a thing. And she said that the reason, you know, she admired Scarlett, but that Melanie was the loving heart of the book and that she had so many qualities that Olivia felt she didn't have, but which she wished she had. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, you know, already in 39, her sister, Joan, there's sibling rivalry there. It's just it's just there. Joan is dating the same guy that she's dated, Howard Hughes. Joan is signed with Selznick, for God's sake, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and Olivia's got feelings about that. Olivia's got a lot of frustrations in her life. She's frustrated with her career. Um, she's frustrated to an extent uh, romantically, um, she moved out of the house uh, from her mother and stepfather because he was so controlling. There were a lot of things in her life that were quite challenging for a young woman of 22 years old. Yeah. And, well, 23 by the time the film comes out. And um, and frustrated. And, you know, she she's not a shrinking violet. She spoke her mind. That's why she was on suspension all the time. <laughs> yes. So 
you know, so to read, to read a, a book about a woman who just loves people, who is loving and who appreciates, can see the, the negativity. I mean, Melanie knows who Scarlett is and knows what Scarlett's doing, mm -hmm. but also understands why Scarlett does what she does far more than Scarlett understands. Mm -hmm. So I think that for, for Olivia, she's always said, and I'm not sure I agree with her on this personally, she's always said that she preferred playing nice girls because they were harder to make interesting. You know? I think there's something it, to that. I think it can yeah. be hard. Definitely a, 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 a evil bitch is more, is it can be a fun, more fun, easier role to, because it's, right? I mean, the interesting parts are already there. Yeah, exactly. That's real fun, you know? I mean, how great is that to do that? Everyone wants and, to be the villain. Yes, and everybody wants to, to, to be the one who wears the low-cut dresses and, you know, yeah. sl slangs down the cocktails and, you know, shoots the guys. But with Olivia, because I think her, because of the way her career was being guided as well, she had to find something interesting in those parts that she was being given by Warner Brothers. And I think in Melanie, what she found was a perfectly loving woman, a woman who gives to family, who is really sort of like and without being being you know oh saccharine about it who right. really is sort of like the ultimate angel in the house mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A, a wonderful sister a wonderful wife a wonderful mother a wonderful friend somebody who contributes to the community someone who remember of course you know the older women always go to miss melanie yes to get her okay is this approved or that sort of thing and I think Olivia looked at that and thought she had a, Melanie had a calm center and Olivia really didn't yeah. at that time, I think. Yeah. And so yeah. I think that's what drew her to, to it. And I think also though, too, I think she was also smart. She looked at who was going for Scarlett and how are you going to compete with Betty Davis? How are you going to compete with Hepburn who, you know, they've got Oscars already. You know, they're right. big stars, Joan Crawford, they're glamour girls. Yeah. Olivia is still in the ingenue phase. Mm -hmm. So I think it was also an incredibly smart career move to, to look at it and go, well, who, who could I play? Well, I think Melanie. Yeah. And, and as it turns out though, you know, I think about the, the many kindnesses she has shown me, just me alone, or my friend, Anne Marie, who had also gotten a letter from her. Um, the kindnesses she's shown um, to her community in Paris, um, to the American University there, the, the library there, the American Cathedral there. I mean, the, the number of things that she has done, uh, the way that she has answered fan mail for years, um, the way that she's been brave after her son died. Um, I, I think the way that she kept quiet about obviously a rivalry that probably would have felt really good to say some things about Joan in public, you know? Right, right, right. It's been so cathartic. Yeah, yeah. When I think of, of how she's conducted her life, I think, you know, maybe she saw that that's, that beautiful core of Melanie is something to aspire to. And I'm not trying to make her perfect, you know? I don't think she's an easy woman, but I think she's uh, an admirable one, without a doubt.
And I have to say, I just want to speak briefly about an, another movie that I saw in high school, or I saw when I was in high school, and I'm not even sure why at the time, but when I saw it, it just grabbed me. And I really liked it, and it's one of her, I think, more underrated movies, and that is Snake Pit. Oh, wow. Oh, I, yeah. I was in a, um, I had a psychology class in high school, and, we were, and I was, uh, I had to see, um, I remember it was three movies, uh, Snake Pit, uh, Three Faces of Eve, and, Ooh, yes. and, and Splendor in the Grass. Oh, wow, what a great class. Yes. Yeah. Well, these, uh, we saw them at home. We didn't see them in class. We saw them at home, but they were, but they were like, it was like sort of like a, um, I want to say like a midterm kind of assignment, you know, long assignment to watch these movies and write a paper on one of them or whatever. And I think sure. I ended up writing it on Splendor in the Grass because... Oh. You know, beautiful film and Warren Beatty was beautiful and, and, <laughs> yes. and that grabbed me too at 16 oh yeah um but no I saw but I remember seeing the snake pit and I really to begin with I remember being shocked that a movie like that had come out at that time yes. period that seemed very yeah. rough and um, just to recap, if people, because it's not a movie that everyone knows about, um, Olivia de Havilland plays a woman whose husband uh, basically put, commits her to an insane asylum. And, yeah. and she's... And it's a state institution yes. as well. And it's, it's not a private care. No, it's not. And it's not a nice place. And they, and they do horrible things there to the people there and to her. And it's almost one of those things where she's, she doesn't seem that bad when she goes in. Yeah. And they make her worse. Uh, to a great extent they do because of the treatment at the time that she's put in, you know, large uh, containment areas. You know, another good film about that suddenly last summer. Yes, yes, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Taylor, Taylor, yeah. Well. Um, and, and also, of course, too, she gets um, electroshock therapy, Yeah, which, which was a, a new, and ironically, of course, isn't it ironic that Scarlett, Vivian Lee, ended up having to have that because yeah. there were no treatments for bipolar illness at that time. Olivia is very interesting because the year before that, she did a film called The Dark Mirror, where she plays twins. Mm -hmm. uh, one is good and one is evil. Um, later on, she did Not as a Stranger for Stanley Kramer, which is about uh, the medical profession. Um, at that time, psychiatry was starting to become a bit more mainstream in, in the United States. Remember that Hitchcock in 45 does Spellbound. Yes, yes. And, and so she was certainly on trend at that time. But it's very interesting that those three films talk about women and that women, you know, hysteria, yeah. female hysteria. If you think about um, the yellow wallpaper, Charlotte Perkins Gilman, you know, that <laughs> yeah. that issues issues with women when women were having nervous breakdowns or psychological challenges, 
that it was very easy to dismiss it mm -hmm. as as oh it's just women's trouble or women's problems or that kind of thing or or it's a secret or it's shameful and so the fact that that Olivia was willing to take that role on because you know she she did visit state institutions mm -hmm. um she she did she always does her homework you know she's an incredibly intelligent woman um she still regrets not taking her scholarship at Mills College um, and, and, <laughs> and doing uh, Midsummer you know, Night's Dream instead. Yes, exactly. You know, <laughs> I mean, I think there was always, I think there was always that bit of regret, you know, with a lot of those very intelligent women yeah. um, stars at the time. But I think it's very, it's, it's a very shattering film that if we look at it now, we might say, oh, that's rather old fashioned. But there's a really good article. And if you do a search on the New York Times, and you put in that title. That article came out seven or eight years ago, but it's about um, psychiatry in cinema. Mm -hmm. And of course, there are whole books on it. Right. And this was this was a very important, very important film because it it acknowledged that everyday regular people and nice young housewives sometimes fall apart. Remember too, at this time. Um, the actress Jean Tierney mm -hmm. is starting to, you know, she gives birth to a, a child that has serious developmental issues. Jean Tierney had a nervous breakdown. Um, and I think that that was not a, a terribly well-kept secret in Hollywood. So I think that, you know, also too, just thinking about the acting profession, mm -hmm. you are a vulnerable live wire all the time. If you're going to do it well, you're bringing that up, yes. you know? Yes. Whatever, whatever your process is, that is being exposed. And so I, I think Olivia doing that, that was not that was not something that she shied away from. You know, mm -hmm. she was very willing. You know, the same thing, if you think the same thing about The Heiress, that's also a film about a woman who, in a way, has a psychological breakdown. Yeah. Yeah. And builds herself back up from that. So. It is a wonderful film and an important film. And I feel like I read that it actually had an effect on, on Asylums at the time that they, yes. I don't know how much they did, but they, but it actually did cause the powers of changes be to, yeah, to, to, to re, rethink what they were doing. And it's, you know, it's interesting if you think of the snake pit as actually being, you know, many, many, at least 20 years before one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Yes. I mean, they're That's very, right. Actually, it's, it's pretty much 20 years, right? It's almost 30 years. 30 it's years. It's 47. 40, and, yeah. Um, and that's 75. So it's almost, it's almost 30 years ahead of that. And it's, and, and you, you have similar themes. You have similar themes and you have similar treatment. And you so, have that same kind of treatment. And now, you know, of course, we don't have state institutions anymore. So now we just have a homeless population, right? Right. You know, I mean, but at, but at that time, at least, it brought to the public in a way that's not, that is, pal you know, palatable. This is the same thing as the Gothic. Yeah. You know, oftentimes you address a topic that if we were just going to talk about it in polite company, well, oh my goodness, I can't possibly bring that up. Right. Oh, but it's talked about in the context of, a vampire film right. or 
or as you say, gothic or noir or something. So then we can talk about it. Well, and so I think those kinds of films in the in the 40s, 50s and 60s did a great deal of good in yeah. terms of taking away that onus of I've got some problems and I'd like to talk to somebody about them. Right, right. No, and they definitely did it in the 50s with sci-fi. You know, sci-fi and horror definitely replaced outer threats. Exactly right. That's it. That's it. Exactly right. How do we talk about the things that terrify us? Yeah. How do we talk about communism and all of that and the Red Scare? Well, we can have a monster coming, you know, the blob can take us over. Well, that's it exactly. Or, you know, um, my wife had a baby and doesn't want to be around that baby anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, that's what yeah. happens, for example, you know, in the yellow wallpaper. Um, what What's wrong with her? My God, every woman wants that. Or right. I've married this woman and, and she doesn't want to be with me. She must be crazy. Every woman wants a, a, a handsome young husband. Right. Well, right. you know, <clears throat> there are other things. And I think that, um, again, I think that's another reason I I would hope that younger readers would would look at not just my book but some of those films and other books as well again we would not be here if it was not for those people who were making those films who were writing those scripts who were fighting for those roles and who were taking chances like that you know exactly exactly well i there's i just have to say there's one topic i have to touch on okay and that is Olivia's fabulous fashion. Oh, oh. yes. Okay. I was lucky yes. enough last summer when we I were know. when I was in uh, Paris. I'm getting my cut. It was either Paris or London. Um, uh, I think you guys were in London. You saw it in London. I saw it in London. You? Yeah, I saw it in London. The Dior collection. Oh. Yes. And they had a couple of um, Olivia's outfits. I think they had a wedding dress. They had the wedding suit that she wore. The wedding wore suit, to, yes. Mm-hmm, for her marriage to Pierre Gallant in 1955. So how did she and Dior hook up? How did that come to be? Well, Olivia was not a fashion plate per se, but like a lot of women in Hollywood in the 30s and 40s, and you know, the fan magazines were hugely important then, um, they would oftentimes do uh, like a fashion shoot um, in clothes that maybe they were going to be wearing for a film. Um, Or, you know, yes, here's like Adrian is designing this wonderful dress that Joan Crawford wears, and then we see it in the department stores. So Olivia, you know, very petite, very pretty, wore clothes very well, always very neatly turned out. So she did a lot of those sorts of things. She then became friends with Edith Head. And, you know, she and Edith Head worked very closely, for example, on the costumes for the heiress. They, mm-hmm. they you know, um, Olivia did a lot of research. They, they together were able to look at uh, garments of the time. And in fact, Edith Head, um, was planning to do a book and um, on contemporary fashion and was going to use a lot of shots of Olivia. These are some of the things I discovered at the Margaret Herrick Library. And that just didn't, that ended up not happening. 
Um, so then when she moved to Paris, her husband, Pierre Gallant, was very well placed in Parisian society. And the, the designer in Paris at, of the moment was Dior. You know, the new look starts in 1947, right after the war. Right. You know, in Britain, in Britain, they're still they've still got ration books until 1952 or 53. Whereas in Paris, he's got that, you know, he's designing the skirt with 20 yards of fabric. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So Olivia gets Dior at the right time. She liked the clothes very much. She went to the salon, and at that time, Christian Dior was still alive. He died in 57. So she developed a, a relationship with the designer. She because too, remember, she's got two Oscars. Right. She's very well placed. And remember, too, her husband was responsible for introducing Grace Kelly to Prince Renier. It was it was a, a like a, a publicity thing during the Cannes Film Festival mm -hmm. and, and Olivia was there. So she was the right place, the right time. And Dior was, you know, Olivia's almost 40 at this time as well. So Dior is designing clothing. And I'm not saying there weren't other designers in France at that time, um, but D Dior is designing clothing for very chic, very sophisticated, very well-positioned women in society who also who are probably have, not 22 who are not 22 exactly he's designing for women right and so uh, she she started to go to him um he designed some of her maternity clothes he designed again the suit that she wore to um her marriage with pierre galant he designed costumes for her um for some of her films and then after dior died uh, Yves Saint Laurent took over for a while, and then Marc Boan, and she wore fashions that all of them designed. You know, in Libel in 1959, she's wearing Dior. Yeah. Um, in in um, Light in the Piazza, she's wearing Dior. Mm -hmm. Dior does at that time. Dior, you know, and this is pre John Galliano. Yeah. Dior at that time is designing, kind of in the, in the same way that Coco Chanel is. You know, they are designing for a woman's body, for a, a sophisticated, elegant, certain kind of woman. And so that's that's how she she developed that affinity with Dior and stayed faithful to Dior throughout her life. Although <clears throat> and, you know, last fall, she auctioned off more of her Dior's. Mm -hmm. um, she auctioned off a great number of them in 1993. And then um, last fall, she auctioned off, I think it was 22 or 23 dresses, um, including Dior's. And what I hadn't realized was that her her wardrobe in Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte was designed by Dior. Oh my. So I, of course, registered for, for the auction. I thought, are you kidding me? I don't care. You know, I, I won't eat for a year. I don't care. And I, I wanted that dress. I wanted that dress so badly because I love that movie so much. Mm -hmm. It ended up going for $8,000. Oh, and, and a lot of her Dior clothes were actually bought by the Dior Foundation, which is wonderful because yeah. they can keep them. They're not going to a private collector, right, you know, right. but I got two of the 
chiffon caftan gowns. <laughs> and oh, that's along fun. with yes, along with shoes for one of them and the um, jewelry with the other one. And I, no, of course I can't fit into them. Um, uh, no, but, no modern woman could. No, you know, I mean, her her feet are so narrow. So yes. even though we're the same height, I just you know people are bigger now. Yeah. Um, bone structure is different, but I am so thrilled that my mom might be my, able to fit into the dress. Your mother, who is so chic, yeah. could fit into both of those dresses. And you know what? Maybe when I go to New York, I'll bring them and we can photograph your mother <gasps> oh. in those dresses. Oh, she, she, she and I both may die right there. <laughs> Well, it's a deal. That's that's <laughs> we got to do it. Oh wow, that'll be fun. Um, but one of the one of the dresses you can see if you if you look on YouTube and look at the nineteen eighty eight Academy Awards. Um, I think she presented Best Director. Oh, that blue dress. Film. The red dress. Oh, the red. I meant. I, what, it's a blue. It's this flowing red dress. Yes. Well, I also got a, a purple one, but it's. And she did wear a blue one another time, but this is the 1988. Okay. And it's this beautiful red, but it was designed, one of the dresses I got was designed by Edith Head. Okay. So when she, when she found a designer, she loved Edith Head for her screen work, and she loved Dior, and then obviously used both of them in her private life as well. Yeah. Um, but beautifully done, you know, silk chiffon absolutely gorgeous exactly what a goddess of the cinema should wear and i'm so pleased that i've got them you know you know um, if anyone should it's you you're right <laughs> <laughs> i agree well victoria this has been just wonderful i'm so happy oh, we got to do this thank you so much emmy for ha for having me back and for letting me talk about the book you know it was it was a labor of love i mean i i worked a long time on it and um it is a tribute and like i said somebody else when she finally passes though she's hold, holding on to 110 that's her goal okay um, and and knowing her i would believe she could do it yes um you know if somebody else wants to come out with some other stuff knock yourself out but for me um I think she's a remarkable woman and one who should be appreciated and rediscovered by yes. by a new generation of film goers. So if there were three movies, you say, you know, someone says, I've never heard of Olivia de Havilland, I've never seen her movies, what three movies should I see to introduce myself to Olivia de Havilland? What should those movies be? Well, although Gone with the Wind seems easy and obvious, I don't think I'd go with that one. I think Again, I think there are too many controversies about it now. Mm -hmm. I would, I would look at. Um, I'd say first, oh, it's so hard. The Adventures of Robin Hood, mm -hmm. so that you could have a sense of her as the romantic ingenue, mm -hmm. and see what real screen chemistry is. Yeah, you know. And also, she rides a horse in it. She was very athletic. Um, it's it's marvelous. It's a wonderful Technicolor. Also, you see how beautiful she is. Yes. So you're going to get the Technicolor. The second film, I would have to say it would be The Heiress. I think it's a very powerful, as you said, and I love the way, you know, the homme fatale. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a very powerful film about repression and about liberation. 
And so, um, and such a 180 from, from Robin Hood that you really get her range as an actress as well. You absolutely do. And then the third one, because I just think it's so much fun, I would say Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, because I think she and Betty, Joseph Cotton, you know, they didn't work together in the 40s and 50s, but she and Joseph Cotton did three or four things after after this. Mm -hmm. um, you've got Agnes Moorhead, you've got Mary Astor, you know, it, it's, it is really Southern Gothic at its height. It is a... a, a you know, they call it hag horror and that sort of thing. But I think it's also a fantastic lesson in mature acting. <clears throat> yes, and I think, you know, it, it's a sign of Hollywood, too. They, they, they call it hag horror. These were, yes. they, to me, when I think of a hag, oh. Olivia de Havilland is not who I think of. You know, no, or Betty Davis, even. I mean, I, these no, were women who were what, in their 40s, 40. 50, maybe? Yeah, uh, Betty is, Betty, I think, is, she was born in 1908, so she's 56. She's 56. And Olivia, yeah, and Olivia is 48. Yeah, these are not, these are the ages of my friends. Like yeah, these Hello. are not these Hi. are not these are not hags. These are not ancient women. No, I mean you know this is you know you wouldn't if if Helen Mirren made a film today, um, co-starring with I don't know a Julia Roberts or somebody would they call that hag horror? Yeah. No, and and the fact of the matter is, Betty Davis gives a very, I think a tender and a funny and a, a thoughtful performance in that film. Agnes Moorhead got an Oscar nomination and she's having a blast. She's hilarious I mean, in that movie. She's fabulous. And she, remember, she's Endora at that time in Bewitched. Yeah. So, yes. you know, she goes from Durwood to that. You know, they are, it's a very interesting commentary, again, on money, power, repression, um, Female sexuality, mm -hmm. uh, female intelligence. I think it's a very, and I've made this argument in various articles. I, I again think it's a pre-feminist film, and I think that just the fact that they, that those women, plus Mary Astor, of course, can go into a film like that and give it poignance and true humor. And, and real scare factor. I mean, scare mm -hmm. good enough to scare you for a year. Yes, um, yes. And and also, it's also been picked up. You know, there's a drag version of it called <laughs> Hush Up, Sweet Charlotte. Yes. Yeah, I heard about that. <laughs> that, is, that is absolutely wonderful. I would say those three films would kind of give you the start and the middle and going towards the end of, of, of her career. Now, she, she kept working for 20 years after Hush Hush, but that was primarily a lot of television and miniseries and, right. you know, things like that. Swarm. Which a yes, a lot of the great Hollywood actors were who were still wanting to work were doing a lot of that, that kind of stuff at the time, um, just as they are now, yeah. you know? Yeah. What's, what's the difference? And again, that's why I say, and I'll, you know, then I'll shut up and close with this. That's why I say Olivia makes us possible. Olivia doing 
Hush Hush with Betty made it possible for Jessica Lange and Susan Sarandon, women in their 70s, six, late 60s, early 70s, to do few. Yes. Without that kind of courage and consistency and insistence upon maintaining a career, those women, women would not have been able to, to do that work. I agree. Hear, hear, Olivia. All hail. All hail, Dame Olivia. <laughs> yes, well, yes. Well, thank you, Emmy. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank and you. We'll, we'll get together as soon as we're all out of lockdown at <laughs> yes. some point and, yes. and we'll meet in New York and we will, we will dress you up. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Me too, Looking darling. Right. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> thank you, Emmy. Thanks. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Real Woman, a podcast about all things cinematic. Have a good evening.